And go ahead and turn to John chapter 4, right at the end of that fairly long chapter. Where John chapter 4, verse 43 to 54, while you find your place there, let's pray. Father, now open our eyes and our ears, our ears to hear your word and our eyes through that word to see Jesus. Remove from us the distractions that can keep us from hearing. Awaken our minds if they're sleepy. Rivet our attention if it is wandering. And by the grace of your Holy Spirit, let us hear and believe and be changed because we have heard from your Son, Jesus. As we have sung, He is our life, our hope, our help, our all. And we find all that we need in and through Him. So help us. Help us. And speak in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 43. It says, After the two days He departed for Galilee. For Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when He came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed Him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Bishop said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son is living. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The purpose of the gospel is to reveal Jesus to us, that we might believe and be saved. John 20, verse 31, which sums up this whole gospel for us. John says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And so as we read this, our goal is to see Jesus, to see Him. For who He is. To understand why He came. And then seeing Him to believe Him. To entrust ourselves and all we are to Him for eternal life. Now, never lose sight of that as you open your Bible. It's not here to tell you more about you. It's here to introduce you to Him. And so, when we left him last time in John 4, Jesus was in a Samaritan village 
with His disciples. And you remember that the Samaritans were a despised ethnic group. Uh, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. But Jesus went there anyway. And there He met this woman at the well and led her to faith. She then ran into town and told everyone about her encounter with Him. So they too came streaming out of town to meet this man who so impacted her life. And they too believed. Then, right at the end of the story, it says in verses 40 to 42, So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so the whole town of Samaritans came to a saving faith in Christ. They saw Him for who He is. And He stayed there with them two whole days. And what wonderful days those must have been. And so verse 43 says it was after those two days that Jesus then departed and returned to Galilee to His own people. They too will give Him a welcome of sorts, but not because they understand who He is. They welcome Him because of what they hope He can do for them. To them, at this point, He's little more than a miracle worker. And they want to see a miracle. But what they don't want and what they don't do is embrace Him as Messiah, Savior, King. So the first thing that we see in this passage this morning is that saving faith is far more than merely giving Jesus a welcome in your life. Adding Him on to your life in some way. These Galileans are going to welcome Him, verse 45 says, but as they do that, they're not really coming to faith in Him. They're not putting their trust in Him. We see that in this statement Jesus makes in verse 44. It says, For Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Literally those words mean in his own home region. And so that's Galilee. And so in contrast to the way Jesus was welcomed by the Samaritans with a joyful faith, I mean, they got it. They saw Him for who He is and believed in Him, but His own countrymen do not. They're going to remain skeptical and unbelieving. You remember back in John 1.11, how John told us that He came to His own, but His own people did not receive Him. They don't see Him for who He is. They, they don't embrace Him by faith as these Samaritans have done. And of course, that's going to be a huge tragedy for the Jewish nation. Their Messiah is here, but they don't believe Him. Now, that doesn't mean they just ignored Him or that they had no interest in Him at all. They were very interested in Him at this point, but for all the wrong reasons. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 45. It tells us that, So when He came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed Him, having seen all that He had done in Jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to the feast. Many of them had gone up to the feast as well. And so when Jesus returns to Galilee after that feast, the Galileans roll out the welcome mat. They're glad to see Him come home. But here's the critical question. Why are they glad to see Him? 
Is it because they've seen the signs He's done and now they realize that He's the Messiah? Oh, not on your life. It's because they've seen the miracles He did and they want to see more. It's the same kind of thing we saw back in chapter 2 at the end. Do you remember when Jesus was in Jerusalem? We're told, well, just go ahead and turn over there. Um, after Jesus had done some rather amazing things there in and around Jerusalem, including the cleansing of the temple, we're told in chapter 2, verse 23, that when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing, but Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He knew what was in man. He knew what was going on here. He knew their faith was shallow and not a saving faith. He knew their interest in Him was merely a matter of curiosity, not a heartfelt trust. And like the seed scattered along the path and in the rocky places, it's not going to last. So while the Samaritans embraced Him warmly with a genuine believing faith, a trust in Him that's going to remain, these Galileans welcome Him more like uh, you would welcome a visiting entertainer. You know, someone interesting, someone who is a bit of a curiosity, but not someone you believe will change your life and take you in an entire new direction in life. It's a reminder for us this morning that welcoming Jesus into your life on your terms is not a saving faith. Inviting Jesus into your heart, those words we've made up, is not the same as bowing the knee to Him as saving Lord. Jesus will not be an add-on to your life, an accoutrement that you take into your life, but basically you remain in charge. If He comes to save, He comes to reign as Lord. Every knee shall bow Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I love the way theologian Michael Horton puts it. He says, Jesus did not come to play a supporting role in the glory story of your life as a secondary character. He came to rewrite the story around Himself where He plays the lead and you get to be a part of His redemption story. And so stop asking Jesus into your heart and surrender to Him as saving Lord. That's the first thing this morning. Second thing we see in this passage is that saving faith, a genuine saving faith, believes Jesus' Word and acts on it. It takes Jesus at His Word and acts on it. We're going to see that in the life of this royal official who comes running to Jesus as soon as he hears he's back in Galilee. And so picking up in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, 17 miles away, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Have you noticed in the Gospels how often desperate people come to Jesus? And here we can understand that this man is indeed desperate. His little boy is at the point of death. 
In verse 49, uh, the word he uses to indicate his son means a very young child, perhaps an infant or a toddler. In my mind, this is my grandson, Killian. And this young boy has a raging fever. They can't stop and he is literally at death's door. Can you imagine the terror of that moment? Most of you parents can. When all hope seems lost. I mean, some of you have indeed been there in your lives. I remember several years ago, a a young lady in our church had cancer. And at the time, things did not appear to be going very well. And I went over to her house after some chemo treatments to see her. And I remember walking into that room and she was down to almost nothing, very pale. And I I walked there and I come to pray. But humanly speaking, at that moment, I felt very little hope. And I put on a brave face and I came into the room and I prayed and we talked just a little bit. And then I went out into my car and I cried and I cried and I cried because it just seemed absolutely hopeless at this point. Now the good news is, by the grace of God, she made a full recovery. And you know, most of you know her. She's in this church sitting back there with her children. I'll leave it at that. Yes. But that sense of desperation... That's the kind of desperation that is driving this man to find Jesus. Now, it says he was a royal official. That's the word that's actually used here. And it means he probably works for Herod. And so lots of wealth at his disposal, lots of power. Anything money can buy, he can probably get. But he is powerless to save his son. But he hears that Jesus has returned to Galilee, and so he hikes the 17 miles uphill to Canaan to find him. Now, that's no easy journey. Capernaum is way down in the valley at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Cana is way up in the hills, 17 miles away. It would be quite a hike. But does that matter to this man whose son is near death? Not a chance. He'd run twice that far if that's what it took. By the way, just as as an aside here, there is a wonderful confirmation of the historical accuracy of John's narrative here. I don't know if you noticed it, but twice in this story, as the man begs Jesus to come with him, what he asks him to do is come down with him to Capernaum. And later in verse 51, as the man returns home, we're told that he was going down. And you say, yes, so what? Well, one of the claims that liberal scholars often make is that whoever wrote the Gospel of John, and they don't know who it was, but they're pretty sure it couldn't possibly have been the Apostle John, is that whoever wrote the Gospel of John, according to the liberal perspective, did so years later. He never met Jesus personally. And from somewhere like uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he himself had never even been to Palestine, they say. And yet again and again throughout this gospel, we find these little details of accuracy, of the kind that would only be possible from someone who knew the terrain, someone who had been there, someone who saw the things happening. John knows that to go from Cana to Capernaum is to go downhill. It's very natural for him, even in using the language, to talk about going down to Capernaum from Canaan. Why is that so natural? Why is that stuck in his mind? Well, because, of course, he's been there. He was there when all this took place. And, and you see that throughout John's Gospel. I'll point it out from time to time. But John just has this amazing, accurate understanding of the whole layout. Well, that was free. 
And so the man hears that Jesus has returned, hikes the 17 miles up the mountain to get to him. I mean, again, he's desperate. His little boy is dying. He has no other hope. And that fact makes Jesus' response to this man sound awfully callous. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now what's going on here? Well, first of all, this rebuke, and it is a rebuke. This rebuke is not directed at the man personally, but to the whole nation. It's in the plural, you guys, you people, unless y'all, you Galileans, see signs and wonders, you're never going to believe, you bunch of sign seekers. I mean, you're not seeking me for who I am. You're seeking me in hopes of seeing another miracle. It's the miracle that you really want to see. Now, we see that same kind of thing in people today who will say things like, I'm just believing Jesus for my miracle. I'm just believing for my miracle. Listen, if you're just believing Jesus for a miracle, you are not really believing Jesus. You're... I mean, you would do the same thing with a magic lamp. You know, I believe if I rub this lamp, a genie will pop out and give me three wishes. No, what's happening in that point is you're looking past Jesus to get the thing that you really want. You're just trying to use Jesus to get to something else. But here's the thing, Jesus will not be used like that. And so he rebukes that whole attitude. But then notice in the process, he does something even more wonderful. He provokes this man to a deeper faith. A faith that looks past the miracle to see Jesus himself. Because Jesus has a plan here. Jesus intends to give this man and his family something far greater than the temporary healing of this boy's body. He intends to give them an eternal healing of their souls. They're going to get a lot more than just a miracle here. Friend, listen. I want you to understand this. He wants to do the same for you. He wants to do more than just this thing or that thing that you feel the urgency for. He wants to help you through whatever the thing is to see Him for who He is and believe Him for an eternal life that is better than all of that put together. But this man is not staggered by this rebuke. His mind is on what he needs. He knows why he came. And he knows that Jesus is his only hope. So verse 49, picking up the story. The official said to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. There's a power and a vibrancy in this exchange that I want to make sure that you see. And so the man says, Lord, that's literally the word here, kurios, Lord, it's almost a prayer. Lord, come down before my child dies. Jesus responds, your son lives. Now that's the literal translation of these words. Um, if you were following me in the ESV, you'll notice I didn't translate it as they do. They say, your son will live. But, but the original is not will live. The original is live. So he's not saying to this man, well, your son will start getting better now and he's going to survive. He'll get through this. It's going to be okay. He's going to live. No, no. What he says is, he lives. 
And, 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 and that, that phrase has, has a fullness of life to it. it. No, he's not going to be an invalid for three weeks and slowly start to turn around and get better till finally he's going to be okay. No, he is full of life now at my word. If that guy had a cell phone in his pocket, he could have pulled it out, called home, and the boy would have picked up and said, Hey, Daddy, I feel great. Do you understand that there is power in the Word of Jesus? Life-giving power. Resurrection power, as we're going to see in chapter 11 with Lazarus. And so that powerful Word that Jesus speaks at this moment does two things for this man. First of all, It demands his complete trust. He's either going to believe it or he's not. And second, it gives him a full assurance that if he will act on that trust, Jesus will come through. But I want you to notice something else about the way Jesus answers this man's prayer here because it's it's really instructive to us as we pray. Notice that Jesus does not answer this man's prayer in exactly the way the man expected. The man asks for something very specific. Jesus, come down with me to Capernaum and heal my son there. Come with me, Jesus. Jesus instead commands the man, go home, man. And when you get there, you're going to find out your son is already healed. He doesn't answer the man's request to come home with him. He does much better. John Calvin makes the point that that Jesus does not answer this man's prayer to come at all, but what He gives is far better. Listen, I hope you understand this. God is not obligated to answer your prayers on your terms ever. God is not obligated to meet your specific expectations of how He's going to do things. Now, will He answer? Oh yes, He will answer, but He'll answer on His own terms. And at the end of the day, what you'll discover is His terms are much better than yours. He does not answer us as we will, but as He wills, and His will is always better in the end. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This week's catechism asks the question, What is prayer? I love the answer. Do you remember it? We just did it. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God for these things. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. Prayer centers on God, not just the requests. Because if you've got God through prayer, you have all the answer you need. Because it's Him, right? You get Him. And so, yes, dear one, ask, seek, knock. But in your asking and seeking and knocking, let it be a coming to God. Let it be a seeking of God. Don't just go to God seeking things. Go to God seeking God. Because when you get God through faith in Christ, you have everything your soul will ever need. That's what Jesus ultimately gives this man.
But then second, notice, because he believed the word of Christ, he acted on it. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Jesus said, Go. The man went. Folks, that's faith. He believed the word and did as Christ commands. So, so, so make sure you understand this. Saving faith is believing Christ in such a way that you willingly do what He says. And your life becomes shaped by that word you believed. Or as James says it in his epistle, it is not a faith apart from works, but a faith that gives rise to the works that grow from faith. And yet, make sure you see this, notice where this begins. It doesn't begin with the man or his works. It begins with Christ and His Word. Again, verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. So saving faith always stands upon the word of Christ. It doesn't stand out here in midair. Faith is not me deciding what I want and just faithing it. I'm just going to believe this thing that I want that I've made up inside my head. No, I rest my faith firmly on the spoken word promise of Jesus. Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And one practical ramification of that is that you should always keep the word and prayer joined together. These things should never be separated from one another. So as I read God's word, I am praying for understanding, praying to see Jesus. But then as I go into prayer and lift my request, I anchor my request to the specific word promises that Jesus gives me. That's what gives me confidence. And so Jesus spoke the saving word, and that was enough. Listen, if it is Jesus' word, it's always enough. You can stake the whole of your life and eternity upon that word. And oh, by the way, that's exactly what you have to do. But notice something else as well. Notice something else as well. This man believes the Word even before he saw a thing. He doesn't have a cell phone in his pocket. He can't pick up the phone and call home and hear his son's voice. Nevertheless, he believes at the sovereign Word Jesus speaks and acts upon the truth of that Word. You know, the word, the world will tell you seeing is believing. Because you've got to see and then you believe. The Christian understands that when Christ is involved, believing is seeing. I believe Him in order to see. Now that doesn't mean we're gullible, right? We, we don't just believe everything we hear. Please don't believe everything you hear. <laughs> but when Christ speaks, we believe. Because we believe Him. Because He Himself is trustworthy. Because He has earned that trust. Because of who He is. And so Christ speaks the Word. The man hears that Word with faith and acts upon its truth. That is the pattern of faith. Is that the pattern of your life? Hear, believe, and obey. 
And we reserve that kind of faith for Christ alone. No human being merits that absolute trust, but Jesus does. Because when Jesus speaks, we believe because of who He is, and we obey because He is faithful. And all His commands merit our complete trust and obedience because He is worthy of that trust. Which brings us into the third and final point this morning, and that is to understand then that saving faith entrusts all to Jesus because of who He is. As I said, nobody deserves this kind of faith but Christ alone. And yet watch how He proves His trustworthiness, His truthfulness, His worthiness to this man, picking up in verse 51. As the man was going down, notice by the way, going down, going down the mountain from Cana down to Capernaum. As the man was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son is living. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son lives And he himself believed in all his household. Now, you understand Jesus does not have to prove himself to you. He doesn't. He doesn't have to prove himself to you before you believe. You don't go around throwing out fleece as they say, and oh Jesus, if you'll do this, then I'll believe you. He doesn't have to prove himself to you. Verses like Hebrews 11.1 say, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Jesus does not have to prove himself... Now, He has proven Himself wondrously so in the resurrection. Three days, I'm going to die, I'm going to get up, believe that, and He showed it. So there is a kind of proof. But for us now, as believers, following this Christ, His Word is enough. And yet, because of the weakness of our faith, He very often gives us proofs to strengthen our faith. He confirms our faith along the way. He did that for Thomas, you remember, at the resurrection. Uh, John 20, verse 27, Thomas was not there in the room when Jesus showed up among His disciples and showed Himself to them. And so when they went and told Thomas about it later, Thomas refused to believe. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. Now, I don't don't know about you, but I, I think... From then on, I would have wanted to treat Thomas kind of harshly. I think that would be my nature. Thomas, you just, you know, what's wrong with you, you old knucklehead? Why can't you just believe? But Jesus is so gentle with him. The next time Jesus shows up in the room with the disciples, Thomas is there. And Jesus walks straight over to Thomas and says to him, John 20, verse 27, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And that's enough for Thomas. He falls on his face and says, My Lord and my God. But it's what Jesus said next that I want you to hear. The very next verse, verse 29, Jesus then said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Listen, He is talking to you there. That 
sentence was put in the Bible for you. You're not in the room with Thomas and the disciples. You can't reach out your hand and touch his wounds. But Jesus says, blessed are you who on the basis of the word alone believe. He did that for us. Well, it is also for our sake in this story of this man in John 4 that Jesus gives a proof to this man even before he gets home. I mean, the man's going to see the proof for himself when he gets home, but Jesus has events happen in chapter 4, verse 51 that are for the sake of our faith. And so it says, as he was making his way back down the mountain toward home, his servants met him. Now, As you read this text, you notice it was the following day when they met him. Evidently, the man, exhausted from his hike 17 miles uphill to Cana, didn't have the strength to turn around and go the 17 miles back home that same day. Somewhere along the line, he's gotten a night's sleep. And I think think that in itself is evidence of this man's faith. Because if you thought your child might die before you make it home, you're going to hurry home as fast as you possibly can, no matter how tired you are. But if you've believed the word of Jesus, your son lives. You're free to rest. You're free to rest. Psalm 127 verse 2 says, He gives sleep to His beloved Are you resting by faith in Jesus? Are you resting your weary and troubled soul upon the basis of His clear and powerful Word? Are you able to sleep even in the face of troubles because you trust in Him? Now, I'm not talking about your sleep apnea you know, and your physical problems. I'm not talking to you moms and dads who have an infant at home, so you're not getting sleep. I get that. But I'm talking about the restfulness of the soul based on the word that Jesus has spoken. His servants meet him on the way down the hill with good news. Your child lives, they say, exactly the same words that Jesus had used. And the father now is very curious. Verse 52, he asks them, so, so, so when did this happen? What time was it? And they say to him, it was the seventh hour, 1 p.m. yesterday afternoon. That's when the fever broke and he got better. And it says the father knew at that point. The father knew that was the exact moment when Jesus spoke the word, your son lives And we're told he himself believed. And now we're not talking about, oh, he believes Jesus can perform miracles. He already knew that. He believed from the soul that Jesus is who he claims to be. Not only him, it says, but all his household. Now look at that. Not only he himself, but when he got home and told this story to his family, they all came to saving faith. Not just believing Jesus is a miracle worker who can do wonderful things, but believing Jesus is who he claims to be, the Messiah, Savior, King. I mean, what a gift Jesus gave to this family. What a gift. Not just the miraculous healing of their son, as wonderful as I'm sure that was, but the miracle of new life itself for every one of them. I mean, I love the fact that this gift branches out into the whole of this 
family. Now, I understand it is not a guarantee that when you come to faith that all your children will also come to follow Christ. And we have lots of examples in Scripture and in life where we see that not taking place. Though, listen, we pray for that, right? Oh, we pray for that. If I know your family and I know your children's names, they're on a list and I pray weekly for that child because my greatest desire, like yours, is that every single one of them come to a saving faith in Christ. We pray for that. We want to see that happen. But isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how the grace of God does very often run in families who faithfully proclaim Him and live for Him and declare Him? And I'm saying that here in light of this to say to you parents, so don't lose heart concerning your children. Whether they're young or old, keep on praying for them. Keep on urging them to believe the Gospel. Keep sharing His Word and demonstrating its faithfulness in your own life, your own repentance, your own need, and His greatness. Because you, you understand if you know Jesus, He is mighty to save. One last thing in this passage. One last thing. There is significance... As John gives us this story, there is significance in the fact that this whole event takes place in Cana where some weeks before Jesus had previously turned water into wine. And you'll notice the author draws our attention to that a couple of times. Verse 46, he says, He came to Cana in Galilee where He made the water wine. So he's, he's drawing your attention to that fact in case you forgot. And then in verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when He came from Judah to Galilee. The second sign. When was the first one? Well, you flip back a few pages and it was, Gal- it was Cana and the turning of water into wine. And so as you're reading along and see that, you have to ask the question, why is John calling my attention to this? Well, he's calling your attention to it because he wants you to remember the meaning of the miracle of changing water into wine. Do you remember that? We studied it some weeks ago. That the meaning of that miracle was to give us a picture of Jesus' power to bring new life where there was no life before and to bring joy to those who did not have it. Well, do you see? That's exactly what he's doing for this family. What does Jesus do for this father and his family? When death and sorrow hung over their heads and seemed ready to crush them, He brings life and joy by faith. Dear one, understand, He will do the same for you as you trust Him. As you believe the promise of His Word in the Gospel, as you rest by faith in Him alone. So yes, He can do miracles, but more than just a miracle, as you see Him for who He is and trust Him for who He is, He can bring eternal life. And these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that you may have life in His name. So let's pray. Father... Father, with that in mind, we do indeed pray this morning. We pray, first of all, for every person in this room that that You will give eyes that can see Jesus for who He is, knees ready to bow, 
Hearts ready to trust. Lives ready to follow in an obedient faith. Not because our obedience saves, but because genuine faith brings joyful obedience. So would you open our eyes to see Jesus? That's the critical issue. Would you open the eyes, Lord, of each adult in this room, each, each person who's already a believer, that they would continue to deepen in their trust of Christ and walk with Him? Would you open the eyes of children? Lord, some of our children are believers now, and we pray that they would continue to grow in that faith. They wouldn't stagnate. They wouldn't stop where they are, but they would grow in the sweetness and joy of, of a life with Jesus. And then, Lord, we, we pray for those... Children who are not believers, Lord, who've, who've tracked along with us, and we're so glad week after week to see them. We love them, and I know the parents deeply love them. Some are in this room, others aren't here, others are out in the world. How we pray for them, that you would arrest their sight and let them see Christ. And Lord, if they've been offended by religion and foolishness that sometimes takes place in the name of religion, that you would sweep that away and let them see the one who will not disappoint them as they trust Him. And then we pray for the littlest ones, Lord, the little ones who, who are too young right now to fully understand what all this means, who, who haven't yet tasted the bitterness of their own sin, though it's there. They haven't tasted it. They don't understand. I pray that you would prepare the soil of their lives to see Jesus, to respond to Him, and that we would hear you say, your son lives, your daughter lives. And we would see them embrace Christ and walk with Him. Lord, for that purpose, we surrender ourselves to You. We bring You our brokenness. We bring You our needs. We bring You our lives. And we say, Lord, speak that sovereign Word. And we will obey. Because You're worthy that we would trust and obey. And it is in His magnificent name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.